Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser. I'm the editor-in-chief of Retinal Physician Magazine. And today on the Retinal Physician Podcast, I'm joined by my good friend, Caroline Baumel. Caroline is a professor of ophthalmology at the Tufts University Medical Center. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Peter. Nice to see you. You know, I thought today we would have our listeners kind of learn about the treatment of diabetic retinopathy. And since both of us are, are a little bit, uh, we'll call it more mature, I thought we would start with the history of diabetic retinopathy treatment because many of the younger ophthalmologists don't really know where we started. And it's always good to look at our past when we're looking at our present. So maybe if you could just kind of enlighten us, how was diabetic retinopathy treated in the past? Sure, Peter. I, it's really interesting that we train people now and they've only known the anti-VEGF era. And, um, and they're so fortunate to just know that. But even though you and I are both 39 and we will always be 39, just like Jack Benny, there was a time way before, and it was in the 70s, where the treatment for proliferative diabetic retinopathy was actually hypophysectomy. Okay, removal of the pituitary gland. And uh, before this podcast, I did a little research on that. I looked at some articles from the late 60s, early 70s. And interesting, at that time, they weren't even sure that pregnancy made diabetic retinopathy worse. And I, I read a nice article from 1970 where they removed a pregnant lady's pituitary gland in order to reduce the progression of her diabetic retinopathy. So of course that can have multiple other complications to remove someone's pituitary gland. You would need lifelong hormone replacement. So we have come a long way from that. And when I was a fellow at Will's Eye Hospital in the 90s, I remember working with um, one of my mentors who I love, and I'm going to put a shout out to him, Bill Benson, if he's listening, you know, I think you're great. And I remember he said to me, he goes, Caroline, I was surprised that laser even worked for diabetic retinopathy. That's why it's so important that we have phase three randomized clinical trials, because he was like, I was surprised. I wasn't sure it was going to work. And I didn't think it was going to work for macular edema related to diabetes, but it did. So that's why we have the benefit of looking back at all of these amazing trials with very, you know, level one clinical evidence to guide us in our treatments. And sometimes we look back at the trials and it's like, well, why did they do this? Or why was something like this done? It's always easier to look back in hindsight and say, oh, maybe this should have been done differently. But we have so much data that we can look at to, to guide us in treating our patients. That's hard to believe that ophthalmology, in particular retina, were some of the first to do these randomized clinical studies. In fact, the diabetic retinopathy study, the DRS that all of us learned for the boards, et cetera, was truly one of the first clinical studies where they randomized. And as you said, uh, I trained with Harry Flynn, who was, you know, you discussed with Harry about laser treatment. And back then it, it was it was basically, I would call it barbecuing the retina. It's very different from the diabetic retinopathy PRPs we do now. Uh, but there were many people back then who thought that that was barbaric uh, and really shouldn't be done. Uh, and only after a, a incredibly well done study did it become sort of commonplace. I'm interested since you you know you're only 39, so so you may not know all the history of of PRP. 
But I can remember in my fellowship uh, at Bascom Palmer that we would really go to town when we did PRPs versus how we do PRPs now. Maybe you can enlighten some of our listeners, sort of how our thinking about PRP has changed over the years. Sure. Well, if we want to go way back to the history of PRP, of course, we have to talk about something that you and I have only read in the book chapters, and that was the German ophthalmologist, and I'm not going to say his name correctly, Mayor Schickenwath, and he used to have uh, patients look through a lens to photo to get the, the rays of the sun to make a burn spot on the retina. And thank goodness we've come a long way from that. Um, I will say that our fellows nowadays don't remember that we used to use gas lasers. And gas lasers were these like big Berthas. I mean, they were big. They had to be hooked up to water. They were much different. And probably when I was a fellow, that is when diode lasers came into use, as well as the double frequency YAG lasers, which gave us portable lasers, um, solid state lasers that we can now use that are much smaller in the clinic. When I was um, a fellow, same like you, we used to barbecue the retina and sometimes people would even treat internal to the arcades and uh, this is important to note because when we look at some of the studies in the drcr net and other studies where there's a prp arm there is a lot of variation into how people do prp even myself with my partners and for example we use a pascal laser for panretinal photocoagulation. And some people use a different laser. There are multiple studies that show when you use smaller spot sizes and you use the Pascal laser, it may not be as efficacious as other types of laser for PRP. And there's so much variability. Personally, what I like to do is I like to combine my PRP often with anti-VEGF therapy when I see patients. And I like to do equator and peripheral to start hoping that they'll have less effect on visual field, um, night blindness, changes like that, that we're concerned about PRP. But I also know that if I give a patient an anti-VEGF injection and they have active proliferative diabetic retinopathy, an anti-VEGF agent will act more quickly in inducing regression of neovascularization than PRP. So many patients who see me that I see for the long haul often eventually have uh, both types of therapies, and that may be what best serves our patients in the future. Yeah, I agree. You know, the, it, it's interesting. Some of the side effects that are always sort of talked about when you talk about PRP are, are almost historic in nature because of the difference in how we perform PRP nowadays. I mean, you avoid the posterior ciliary artery, uh, ciliary nerves. You, you do things. You don't bring it in up to the arcades or even within the arcades. You're not as confluent as we used to be. So, you know, the, when you when you hear about the side effects of laser, you know, some of them are actually uh, kind of historic. How do you follow patients and kind of decide when you're done with PRP? And, and, and how often do you do it in one sitting versus multiple sittings? I try to do my PRP treatments in one to two sittings, really depending on what the patient will tolerate. Um, I find that if I do a very heavy, complete treatment in one sitting, there are 
complications that can happen, exudative detachment, um, pain. So I prefer to do it in two treatments, but I always do it as an individualized approach. For example, there might be a patient who I think will never come back again um, just uh, because of not even compliance, sometimes lifetime issues, sometimes they live far away. So that's the sort of patient I'll try to do all in one sitting. Otherwise, I, I typically do it in two sittings. And, you know, the recent uh, approval of anti-VEGF agents, both ranibizumab and aflibercept for the treatment of diabetic retinopathy in the absence of macular edema has certainly uh, given us another tool in our belt. And there are patients who, who benefit from this type of therapy, but I, I kind of want to hear how you bring this up with your patient, because many of these patients especially the ones without macular edema, have excellent visual acuity. Uh, and you're telling them that you're going to be doing a treatment that's going to need to persist for a very long period of time. So how do you bring this up and what patients do you choose to do this treatment in? Well, we're so fortunate to have the data that we have, starting even as far back as Rise and Ride, where we saw that Ranibizumab treated not only DME, but there was also this two-step improvement in diabetic retinopathy severity. And really, if, um, if we look at the Early House classification of diabetic retinopathy severity, and that's what we use in clinical studies. And for those who want to know, Early House is actually a place in Virginia where they made this classification. It really, we have a lot to be grateful for to these people who classified it that they were correct that it does seem to progress diabetic retinopathy and like quanta, you know, and that, that is reproducible among patients. So we're fortunate. So, and now we have also to corroborate the evidence of anti-VEGFs improving diabetic retinopathy. We have the Panorama study, which I think is a great study and answers a lot of questions that we want to know. Should we be treating our patients earlier even if they don't have center-involved DME, but if they have this high-risk diabetic retinopathy, high-risk non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And of course, Peter, we also have protocol W. Um, and one thing that I would say really surprised me from looking at protocol W and Panorama was that, so we have decades of experience with diabetic retinopathy now and looking at progression. And I thought that wow, our treatment, our insulin treatment, patients are on pumps, people are managing their diabetes better, and they're living longer. But if you look at the progression of severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy to proliferative diabetic retinopathy, based on the DRS and the ETDRS studies, we're actually not better. It's still 40 to 50% of patients are progressing from severe non-proliferative to proliferative and having vision threatening complications. So I, I was shocked. I thought we'd be like, oh, people are managing their diabetes better. They're not going to become proliferative as often. And we didn't find that. So because of that, I, I really have a high index of suspicion when I see a patient who has, you know, severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. I, first of all, I'll often consider doing a wide field fluorescein in those patients because it's been shown that a significant number of patients have these 
peripheral lesions and they might have peripheral neovascularization. And while I like to think that I see everything, there are times that a peripheral lesion might not be seen. So I'll use wide field fluorescein or even wide field fundus photography, I find is very helpful to you know, boost up the contrast and look closely for neovascularization that I might be missing. Um, and Peter, that's another thing that a lot of the clinical studies we do don't do wide field fluorescein. So we're, we're kind of missing out on not having that. Um, then I will discuss it with my patients and tell them that they're in a very high risk zone and even controlling their diabetic retinopathy may not prevent the progression at this stage. We just don't know from looking at all these clinical studies, from looking at panorama, remember these patients had A1Cs less than 10. So they're not that, you know, they're not as controlled as we would like, but you know, they're not the most awful diabetics, but yet they still progressed. So um, I will try to pull the patients into the game at this point. I will use clinical photographs to show them what I'm talking about, to show them the leakage, to show them um, the areas on the cube where the retina might be thickened and explain to them the potential for vision loss and talk to them about laser and anti-VEGFs. And I think that patients who've had vision loss in one eye or patients who might have any other ocular problems, myopia, if they've had retinal detachment, they have a family member with vision loss, patients who tell me, doctor, you know what, I can't come in a lot, I have a job, it's just very hard for me to get in. These are the patients who I would consider earlier treatment. Yeah, it's it's actually hard to believe that that Arley House meeting actually occurred um, almost right around the time we were born, 1968. Um, and it's been modified since then, but You're but it, it's anything. unbelievable, you know, that we're still 39 years old and, and you know, we, we knew, we heard about this, um, but that they were actually that long ago able to sort of predict um, sort of what progressed and what were the things to watch for. And, and the interesting thing is there are actually many authors currently. Um, so Ramin Tadiani, for instance, is one of the big ones now, who's basically saying that, you know, just the use of color photographs, as was performed in, in the Arley House classification and, and basically the DRSS, is really not uh, as precise as a multimodal imaging type of approach, like you just described, using wide field fluorescine to look for ischemia, um, because there are many things that change with anti-VEGF treatment that really isn't seen on a DRSS scoring system. Now, obviously, that's what we have, but but people are looking at, at newer and newer systems. Um, the last thing I wanted to kind of discuss is, you know, when you start a patient with on anti-VEGF, some people have argued, well, you just keep them on anti-VEGF uh, and you don't really combine it with, say, PRP. And, and I'd love to get your opinion about that statement. You know, how do you manage patients long term? It's a great question. And uh, if we had a room full of retina specialists here, I think we'd get a room full of different answers. Um, the one thing that confounds it is, for example, if you see a patient with proliferative diabetic, we all, proliferative diabetic retinopathy, I think all of us would treat someone with center-involved DME and vision loss, and all of us would treat someone with high-risk PDR. I would say any PDR personally, but there might be some people who, who differ. Um, if you treat someone with those changes and 
you give them an anti-VEGF injection, the changes will get better. So what's the end point? Do you wait for the disease to come back to start treating them? And how are you going to follow them with fluorescein? That's a lot of fluorescenes. We don't really do that anymore. Or do you give them treatment every once in a while to sort of keep it at bay? And I will say that I really do find that the learnings from the Panorama study have been interesting, especially the patients that were loaded with four injections, and then they received treatment every 16 weeks. So whether that's three or four injections a year, it did show me that those patients at the end of 100 weeks, there was a much reduced chance of vision-threatening complications. And I really liked that study because it had a sham arm. So that let us know the natural history, and those patients got worse. So I do think that if we give patients an injection of anti-VEGF, whether it's every three months or every four months, we are able to modify or slow down the progression of this disease. What would be the best case scenario? For example, if we had uh, a treatment with longer durability, if we only had to give someone an injection once or twice a year, maybe it would be easier to pull someone into the game. If you use the panorama criteria, you know, and we gave someone three injections a year, do you think, Peter, what do you think? Do you think your patients would find that acceptable? I think many do. And that, and that's exactly the point where hopefully in the future we'll have some even longer acting anti-VEGF therapies that, that maybe once every six months, once a year, or if gene therapy works, maybe one and done. So, so we'll have to see. But I really appreciate you joining us. I, I know you're skiing in Vermont and, and hopefully the snow is good. I grew up skiing in Killington, Vermont, so not too far from where you are. Uh, and sometimes at this at this time of year, we'd be skiing amazing powder and other times uh, we'd be hiking because the slopes had no snow. But hopefully you guys are, are having a great time. I want to thank uh, my guest today on the Retina Physician podcast, Caroline Bommel, and hope you'll all join us for the next podcast series. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Great to talk to you.